We shouldn't talk about this may contain graphic descriptions and or explicit content that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everybody. I'm Key. And I'm V. And this is We Shouldn't Talk About This. Good day to you, Key. A good day to you, sir. What's going on in the world of Key? My tomatoes are growing. I have like way more than two tomatoes now. I'm super excited. Really? Really. I have one eggplant. I have some peppers coming. Like my little backyard garden is booming. So how do you know when these reach when they reach their um proper size? Like how like how do you know? Well, it depends on the item. Like uh the tomatoes I have like little cherry tomatoes and also like regular size tomatoes so you kind of just have to like eyeball them but they kind of start turning from green to like orangish that's how you know they're mm-hmm. ripened so they're like at their full size pretty much but like eggplant is like you know they vary in shape and size so you just kind of you pluck them off while they're still shiny like if they start to get dull then like that's as far as they're going to grow and they're like kind of overripe at that point oh man that's crazy yeah so when you're shopping for eggplant always grab the shiniest ones the shiny ones yes got it now now that does sound very very interesting i'm glad i'm glad they're not dying that they're thriving they better be thriving. I'm out there hand pollinating everything every day. Every day. Every no days day. off. No days off. Hand pollination or I don't know. Or no pollination, hand, I guess. Hand, <laughs> hand pollination or no situation. That's right. Or no procreation. There we go. There we go. There we go. Well, that's what's up. That's what's up. So today, what do you think we shouldn't talk about? You know, with the whole quarantine thing, I've really been missing just the camaraderie and physicality and just the feeling that watching sports really gives you, like rooting for my teams watching them play like it just seems like the you know the world is a a tiny bit sadder with no sports so let's talk about some sports crimes now that is definitely very interesting because i know that athletes are beloved some people have you know of course their favorite athlete like they will never ever ever stop loving them but you know what they're humans they're not perfect they make mistakes that is true and we're going to dive into a couple of interesting cases that celebrities fell off from high because they were caught in the wrong and they paid the price and now their career is not the same. They're looked at differently now. Yes. And my case, I cannot wait until you hear it because I cannot believe, I feel like once you hear it, you will remember it, but when I told you the names and you just didn't know, I was super shocked. So, 
I can't wait for you to either hear it for the first time or come to the realization that you have heard it and like kind of remember it because mm. mine is mine is good all right well let's hear it then i'm ready all right well gather around children it's time for a tale of crime now tanya maxine harding was born november 12 1970 in portland oregon to lavana golden and albert harding Harding was raised primarily by her mother, who enrolled her in ice skating lessons beginning around three or four years old. Harding spent much of her early life training, but during her youth, she also hunted, drag raced, and learned automotive mechanics from her father. So she was like kind of well-rounded. She did some drag racing? That's what's up. Right, right. As a as a youth too, like as a kid, like you know, that's that's pretty sweet. However, she eventually dropped out of high school to devote her time to ice skating. Now Tanya did have to deal with turmoil in her home life though. She claimed that she was frequently abused by her mother and that by the time she was seven years old, physical and psychological abuse had become a regular part of her life. Lavana has only admitted to one instance of hitting Harding at an ice rink. Like, I guess her spins weren't tight enough or her leg wasn't straight enough. And I mean, Lavana was not having it. Maybe she fell and she was an embarrassment to the family. Whatever it was, Lavana was not having it. Now... In Harding's 2008 authorized biography, The Tanya Tapes, Harding alleged that her half-brother, Chris Davison, molested her on several occasions when she was a child. In 1986, Harding called the police after Davison had had been sexually harassing and terrorizing her. He was arrested and spent a short time in prison. Harding said her parents were in denial about Davidson's behavior and told her not to press criminal charges against him. Now, sadly, but if the allegations were true, then not sadly, Davidson was killed in an unsolved vehicular hit and run accident in 1988. Oh, geez. But despite all of this, in the mid 80s, she began working her way up the competitive skating ladder with coach Diane Rawlinson. This is the same coach that she trained with as a figure skater throughout her youth. Tanya placed six at the 1986 U.S. Figure Skating Championships. Oh, I said that really weird. Championships. Fifth in 1987 and 1988 and third in 1989. After competing in the February 1989 National Championship, Harding began training with Dodie Teachman as her coach. She then won the October 1989 Skate America competition and was considered a strong contender in the February 1990 U.S. Figure Skating Championships. However, she was suffering from the flu and asthma and had a poor free skate performance, although she was known as a strong free skater. 
After the original program, she dropped from second place and finished seventh overall. Now, have you ever, like, just really watched ice skating? I, I've, I've seen it on people's TVs before, and I watched, I watched them kind of, like, do, like, their relay kind of thing, but not specifically. Oh, like speed skaters? Like, when they just, like, race each other yeah. around? Yeah. Okay, so not, like, like, skating, like, you know, where they have the fancy outfits and all that. No, 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 I have not. Have you ever been ice skating? Yes, I have, and I cut my friend's hand open, so I'm I'm really doing that too much again. Well, since you have actually been ice skating, then you know that it is like a physical, physical workout. Like, it is a full body workout. Yeah, I don't see how hockey players do it how hockey players do it in gear and hitting stuff and chasing after a puck. I don't either. Oh, and I like watching hockey, but man, that just seems like two minutes in and I'd be like laying on the ice somewhere. I'd be like, no, this, <laughs> I can't. <laughs> I can't. Yeah, seriously, it's crazy. Well, Harding's breakthrough year came in 1991 at the U.S. Championships when she completed her first triple axel in competition. And that was on February 16th, and she was the first American woman to execute the jump. Now, a little sidebar here. An axel is one of the six main jumps that every figure skating program... Wait. An axle is one of the six main jumps that make up every figure skating program done in competition today. It's notable and recognizable to the casual fan because it's the only one that is begun with the skater facing forward. To complete an axle, a skater takes off from the outside edge of one skate, rotates in the air, and lands on the outer edge of the opposite skate. That sounds very, very precise. Yes. An axle is an edge jump, meaning that the skater springs themselves into the air from bent knees instead of using a toe pick to push off the ice, which is like that ridged part in front of the skate. The word triple refers to the number of rotations a skater completes before landing on the opposite skate that they took off from. So because the skater takes off from or for an axle skating forward and lands it skating backwards, there's really an extra half rotation in the jump. So a skater must complete three and a half full rotations before landing to successfully complete a triple axle. Wow. Right. So that right there is a lot of, like, you have to have a lot of momentum to spin three and a half times in that short little, like, jump space. Seriously, that's crazy. That is. Now, if she land or she landed seven triple jumps in the long program, including that triple axle, she won the 1991 Lady Singles title 
with the event's first 6.0 technical merit score since Janet Lane's 1973 performance in the U.S. Championships. Now, she won the long program because seven of the nine judges gave her first place. And in doing so, you know, that was basically the whole competition. At the March 1991 World Championships, which was an international event, event, she again completed the triple axle. Harding would finish second with the silver medal behind Christy Yamaguchi and in front of Nancy Kerrigan, marking the first time that one country swept the ladies' medal podium at the World Figure Skating Championships. USA! USA! Okay. Nice. They did a great job. Right. Now, maybe because I'm a girl, I used to like really be into figure skating, and I remember Christy Yamaguchi and like all like, you know, not maybe these specific, well, yeah, I guess not these specific championship matches, but I remember like, you know, she was a very good skater. Now, at the September 1991 Skate American competition, Harding recorded three more first. The first woman to complete a triple axle in the short program. The first woman to successfully execute two triple axles in a single competition. And the first to ever complete a triple axle in combination with the double toe loop. Despite these record-breaking performances, after 1991, Harding was never able again to successfully complete the triple axle in competition, and her competitive results began to decline. She placed third place in January 1992 U.S. Figure Skating Championship despite twisting her ankle during practice, and finished fourth in the February 1992 Winter Olympics. On March 29th, Harding placed sixth in the 1992 World Championships, although she had a better placement at the November 1992 Skate Canada International event, finishing fourth. In the 1993 season, she skated poorly in the U.S. Championships and failed to qualify for the U.S. or no, for the World Championship team. Now, we're going to go to the bronze winner when the USA swept the medals, Nancy Kerrigan. Nancy Ann Kerrigan was born October 13th, 1969 in Stoneham, Massachusetts to Daniel and Brenda Kerrigan. Nancy took up figure skating at the age of six and won her first competition, the Boston Open, at age nine. Kerrigan began to reach prominence at the national level when she placed fourth at a junior level at the 1987 U.S. Figure Skating Championships. She made an early impression as a strong jumper and began moving up the national rankings each year after she made her senior debut the following season. Kerrigan's rise to national level continued when she won the bronze in the 1991 U.S. Figure Skating Championships, where, again, USA swept the competition. 
1992 season, Kerrigan again improved on the placement on her placement at the previous year's championship by finishing second. She earned the silver silver medal at the 1992 World Championships and won a bronze medal at the 1992 Winter Olympics. The following season, Kerrigan became United States champion, even though her performance was flawed. She had won the short program in the World Championships in Prague, but had a disastrous free skate that resulted to her dropping to fifth in the standings. This was followed by an even worse performance at a televised Pro-Am event where Kerrigan fell three times and botched the landing of another jump. Now you would think that these two ladies would kind of like come together and be like, let's help each other. Let's, you know, you're having a rough time. I'm having a rough time. Let's support each other. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I would think so. You would think so, but no. So, Before and after the 1992 Olympics, Kerrigan had many opportunities to perform professionally, which were permitted um, after the International Skating Union. But in preparation for the 1994 Winter Olympics, she stopped all these activities to focus on her training instead. She also began working with the sports psychologist to better handle her nerves in competition. Now, here's where we get to the actual crime. On January 6, 1994, at the U.S. Figure Skating Championships in Detroit, D-Town, represent, Kerrigan Kerrigan was the victim of a crime that caused her to gain international fame far beyond the skating world. As she was walking through a corridor at the Cobo Arena, Immediately after a practice session, Kerrigan was attacked. Using both hands, a man, who was later identified as Shane Stant, swung a 21-inch, or 53-centimeter, ASP telescopic baton at her right leg, striking her above the knee. The attack was intended to seriously injure Kerrigan so that she could not compete in the Nationals, where she would be defending the 1993 championship and to take her out of the Winter Olympics. Yo, that's so fucked up. Right. The attack's immediate aftermath was recorded on a TV camera and broadcast worldwide. The initial footage showed people trying to help Kerrigan as she grabbed her knee, crying out, Why? 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 Kerrigan was also seen being carried away by her father, Daniel. Now, her leg was not broken, but severely bruised, forcing her to withdraw from the championships and forego competing to retain the U.S. ladies' title. On January 8th, two days later, Harding won first place at the U.S. Figure Skating Championships. Now, Although Kerrigan was, her injury forced her to withdraw from the U.S. uh, figure skating championships, her fellow skaters agreed that she had merited one of the two spots on the Olympic team. Now, that um, January 8th championship, like whoever 
were like the two highest placings are the two who got put on the Olympic team. So that's why that one was very important. Ah, I see, I see. So Harding and Kerrigan were both selected for the 1994 Olympic team, which I think is very commendable to her teammates. Like, they were like, no, she really did earn it. Like, she is, like, she deserves one of the spots, even though she couldn't compete. Yeah, that is. That's, 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 that's amazing right there. Now, Kerrigan quickly recovered from her injury and resumed her intensive training. She practiced by doing complete back-to-back double run-throughs of her program until she felt completely confident in her ability to compete under pressure. Now, on January 18th, 1994, Tanya Harding was with her lawyers when she was questioned by the DA and the FBI. She was interviewed for over 10 hours. Over 10 hours? 10 hours. Goodness. Now, eight hours into the interview, her lawyer read a statement announcing her separation from then-husband Jeff Galuli, who she married in 1990. The Seattle Times reported the FBI transcript after they had released it in full, stating that Harding had changed her stories well into the long interview. After hours of denying any involvement in trying to cover up the plot, an FBI agent finally told her that, quote, he knew she had lied to him, that he would tell her exactly how she lied to him. In the transcript's final passage, Harding stated, I hope everyone understands. I'm telling on someone I really care about. I know now Jeff is involved. I'm sorry. On January 19th, Jeff Galuli surrendered to the FBI. On January 20th, Diane Sawyer asked Harding on primetime about the criminal investigation. Harding said she had done nothing wrong. On January 27th, Harding held an 11 a.m. press conference to read a prepared statement. She said she was sorry Nancy Kerrigan was attacked and that she respected Nancy and claimed not to know in advance of the plot to disable her. Harding then publicly took responsibility for, quote, failing to report things about the assault when I returned home from nationals on January 10th. My failure to immediately report this information, however, is not a crime. Which technically is true in some states. That's not a crime. Some states. Now... On February 1st, Galuli's attorney negotiated a plea bargain in exchange for testimony regarding all involved parties in the attack. The plot to attack Nancy Kerrigan apparently began to develop in December 1993. Tanya Harding was disappointed and worried about a rival skater, Kerrigan, after Harding finished fourth at a December competition in Japan. 
they plan to attack Kerrigan at the 1994 U.S. Championships because, again, the top two skaters at the Detroit competition would compete in the Olympics in Lillehammer, Norway in February. Shane Stant and his uncle Derek Smith were hired for this assault by Harding's ex-husband, Jeff Galuli, and her one-time bodyguard, Sean Eckert. In July, Galuli was sentenced to two years in prison after publicly apologizing to Kerrigan, even though he said, quote, any apology from me rings hollow. Galuli and Eckert pled guilty to racketeering. Stant and Smith, who drove Stant in the getaway car and funneled money, pled guilty to conspiracy to commit second degree assault. Damn. On February 17th, 1994, so not even, like, just barely over a month, Nancy Kerrigan and Tanya Harding shared the ice at a practice session in Hamar Olympic Amphitheater. Approximately 700 members of the press were there to document this practice. 700? Yes. Wow. It was noted that Nancy Kerrigan chose to wear the same skating costume at the practice session that she was wearing when Stan attacked her. Karen Kerrigan later confirmed that her choice of costume that day was deliberate. She said, quote, humor is good, it's empowering. The you take delay. Right. She was like, I'm here. You tried to take me out. It didn't work. Boom. Now watch me skate. Now, the tape delayed broadcast of the February 23 Ladies Olympic Technical Program remains one of the most watched telecasts in American history. On February 25th, Harding finished eighth in the Olympics. Nancy Kerrigan, having recovered from her injury, won the Olympic silver behind gold medalist Oksana Bayul, in, uh, who's from the Ukraine. So after all that, she placed eighth. And well, Nancy got second. It couldn't have been a perfect story. <laughs> now, on March 16th, 1994, Harding pled guilty to conspiracy to hinder prosecution as a Class C felony offense at the Multnomah County Court hearing. She and her lawyer, Robert Weaver, negotiated a plea bargain ensuring no further prosecution. Her plea admissions were knowing of the assault plot after the fact, settling on a cover story with Galuli and Eckert on January 10th, witnessing payphone calls to Smith affirming the story on January 10th and 11th, and lying to FBI with the story on January 18th. Her penalties included three years of probation, a $100,000 fine, and 500 hours of community service. Wow. She agreed to reimburse Multnomah County $10,000 in legal expenses, 
undergo a psychiatric examination and volunteered to give $50,000 to the Special Olympic Oregon charity. In June 1994, Claire Ferguson, the president of the U.S. Figure Stating Association, voted to strip Harding of her 1994 title, where she won first place in Detroit after Kerrigan was attacked. However, the competition results were not changed and the title was left vacant rather than moving all the other competitors up one position. There have been numerous movies, spoofs, comedy sketches, and books written about this incident and, the, and both skaters actually, including the most recent movie being I, Tanya in 2017. And that was my story. Wow, that was crazy. See, here I am. I'm following, I'm following Kerrigan's path this entire way, and then boom, is someone else attacking her. Man, right. I, I thought, I thought, I thought she was gonna like go into the depths of like some kind of crazy underground stuff, you know? I was no. ready for it. Oh, you thought she was gonna be like steroids, and she was gonna be like out there doing quadruple axles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, no a, a jealous skater who saw her on the rise was like, "Oh no, I got to take her out the competition. Somebody go break her kneecaps." Like, you know, what if he hit her on the kneecap? Oh my gosh! Yeah, it would have straight up shattered it. Um, now the first time, like for for me, I don't, I don't like you know, since I don't keep up with sports and stuff like that. The first time I ever saw and attacked on a rival teammate was in the movie and it was in Stomp the Yard, I think it was. Okay. Maybe like did it like beat up a Marion or something like that? So you can't dance anymore. But <laughs> something that really happens. <laughs> I'm serious. That's the first I've ever, ever heard something like that. Yeah, like yeah. I did not know until I started researching this that like everything happened in such a short succession. Like, I thought it took her, like, years to get back to the Olympics, like, not a month. Like, you know, I, I didn't I didn't know it. Like, it happened in January, and then in February, she was in the Olympics competing, winning second place. Yeah, I would definitely expect it some more time between that. <laughs> yeah. But that's great. Like, that's crazy like crazy the fact that she was like I, I didn't know anything about it until after it happened like so you telling me your husband just was like hmm whose knees could we break so that you will be first place maybe maybe the husband was just sick of hearing her talk about it at, every day at dinner so he decided to find the chick and do something about it you know maybe he was his own accord I don't know. She, to this day, she still holds firm to that story that she did not know anything was happening beforehand. Like, neither one of them competes anymore. But there has also been a recent um, interview, like, when that I, Tanya movie came out, there was, like, you know, of course, a recent interview with Nancy Kerrigan, too. And she, you know, she just lives her nice, quiet life. And she just wants it all to stay in the past. Tanya Harding seems to more like relish in the limelight a bit. 
but either way, I'm glad that, you know, he was a horrible henchman and hit her thigh and not her actual knee. That's right. Him and his bad accuracy saved the day. Right, because she probably would have went to like to jail for real if mm-hmm. uh, if her if her knee had got broken because a a shattered kneecap with a baton like one of those like batons that like whip out when you flick it. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, he would have did some serious damage had he like hit like the front of her leg like under her knee where there's not a lot of meat like on your shin or her actual kneecap. Just think about that seems think about that's painful. Yeah, yeah. Like touching my touching my own knee and thinking about that's painful. Right. But well, everything is it worked out. So I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is very, very good. Now my story is solely about it's only about the athlete I speak about, and no other athletes. Well, maybe we'll see. So, Evangelos Gusis, or Angie for short, was born September 14, 1967, in Tashkent, inside the former country of Uzbekistan of the USSR, to a family of Greek immigrants. Angie was lean and a born fighter. Angie's father, <clears throat> Angie's father, Aristotus Gusis, had been a resistance fighter against the Nazis during World War II for Greece, and was a pro-Soviet guerrilla in the brutal Greek Civil War of the late 1940s. In 1949, following the victory against the communist guerrillas in Greece, Aristotus and his wife Mahi, a Red Cross child care worker, fled to Ibikistan. Gusis arrived in Australia at the age of eight. Leaving school, Gusis had various jobs such as an apprentice motor mechanic, a sheet metal worker, fitness consultant, and nightclub bouncer. Ah, that's a lot. It is, yeah. When Andrew was in his 20s, he became a boxer. And he was a contender for the 1988 Summer Olympics to be held in Seoul, South Korea. However, he did not qualify. Go now, that must be hard, like, to train for something as big as, like, the Olympics and then not qualify. I would be so depressed. Maybe, maybe, maybe he underestimated, maybe he underestimated how intense it was. Because, maybe like... So. Because, like, you know, like, because, like, if you are, like, an athlete and you're going hard and everything, you're like, yeah, you know, I should, I should, like, you know, try out for the Summer Olympics. But then, like, you do and you see just how much more you can do and you're like, okay, okay, I understand now. You know, so, so hopefully it was, like, a learning point for him because, you know, you can always, you can always be a better version of yourself, you know, no matter what. Well, thanks for that little uplifting moment right there. Yeah, anytime. I feel feel inspired now. Good. Let's go do something today. It's too late for that. (laughs) (laughs) It's too late for me. In the early 1990s, 
Gusis competed in kickboxing and became the World Kickboxing Association middleweight champion. So he at least did that. Wow. I mean, kickboxing, that's rough. I, I wouldn't want to just be kicked. Like, <laughs> no. You want to get your someone's foot smacked into your face? Absolutely not. <laughs> I don't even like when I like accidentally get kicked by a baby, like much less a grown person at full force. <laughs> no. Right. Well, during his early twenties, Gussis drifted into a life of crime after meeting many criminal associates, whether that's with his employment as a bouncer or through boxing. It's lots of shady characters to be around. And in November of 1989, Gusis was convicted of attempted murder and trafficking in heroin and sentenced to a term of imprisonment. But 25 years later, he was convicted of carrying an unregistered firearm. Now, this is where things kind of get pretty interesting. So, Louis Kane, also known as Sean Vincent, was an underworld figure based in Melbourne, Australia. And the boyfriend of lawyer Zara Gard Wilson. Vincent had lived with Gard Wilson for a period of about two years before he died. On May 8, 2004, Angie and associate Keith traveled to Melbourne from Geelong to meet with Vincent and the Carlton Hotel at the invitation of Keith. The body of Vincent was found with a single gunshot wound to his head in a dead end in a dead end street on later later on the eighth. Jeez. Yeah. At the um at the trial of his murder, Angie claimed self defense, saying that Vincent uh pulled a gun out and fired at him, however the gun jammed. And so, and so Angie then shot Vincent in the head with a single shot before dumping his body in a laneway. Angie was found guilty by the jury for the murder of Vincent. So even so, even if even if Vincent did pull a gun out on him, Angie still had a gun of his own apparently, because if he pulled out a gun and it jammed, you're not going to take that gun from his hand and then shoot him with it because it's already jammed. You're going to pull your own gun and shoot him. So. You know, unless you are familiar with guns, depending on the type of gun, you can like unjam it and shoot it. No, since his father was a gorilla, he should just like grab the barrel of the gun and un like disassemble the gun while it was in Vince's hand. That would be impressive, right there. That would because it's actually pretty hard to disassemble a gun like backwards like that. Transporter can do it. He is not human. Shout out to Jason Statham. Jason Statham. No, but like if it was self-defense, why not call the police? Why mm. just leave him in the alley? Right. Yeah. That just makes you seem pretty guilty. See- exactly. Exactly. Yeah, at least like, you know, it'd be like like shoot him and then call the police and like Pretend like you're panicking and be like, I don't know what happened. He's gone. He's gone. You know, just be 
be hysterical. But if you leave the body, you're probably guilty. Right. Words to live by. Hmm. Mass gunmen entered the Brunswick Club on Sydney on Sydney Road, Brunswick, at about 7 p.m. on March 34th, March 31st, 2004. So he's just making updates at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Louis, Louis Moran ran from his ran from his place at the bar and through a poker machine room before the gunman caught up with him and shot him twice. The fatal bullet being fired into the back of his head from a couple inches away. Associate Bertie Rote was severely wounded but survived the attack. On May on May 29, 2008. Andy was found guilty of the murder of Louis Moran and on February 9th was sentenced to life of imprisonment with a 30 year non-parole period. So let's let's reverse this real quick. So Louis Moran died March 34th. Oh my gosh. Died March 31st, 2004. And Andy was found guilty May 29th, 2008. Isn't that crazy? Well, they say the wheels of justice turn slowly. That that was just ridiculous right there. It is. That that's it took a long time for them, especially for it to be like something that they obviously had witnesses. Yeah. Yeah, especially if you go through a whole like if you go through a whole bar and poker machine room. And people people gonna see people gonna see someone just running for their life and getting chased by people with guns. Or even if they don't have guns, they'll see more than one person running after someone. Right. That that did seem like it took an awful long time. Absolutely. Angie was also under investigation for the murder of a male prostitute, Shane Cartis Abalt who was shot dead in professional hit outside his reservoir home on the 4th of June, 2003. Now, Shane was traveling to a Melbourne County court where he was due to appear to face rape charges, but he died before he was able to get there. July 8th, the Victorian, July 8th, 2014, the Victorian court system jury found that Angie and two other co-accused co- co- were not guilty for the murder of Shane. In 2013, the growing disquiet emerged regarding the nature of the evidence to secure Angie's conviction. It was revealed that contradict- contradictory accounts by the primary prosecution witness had been rewritten to fit the telephone call records provided by police. In 2014, Angie was released of his accounts of events alleging police misconduct and called for a royal commission. So he got out? He got out. Because they were cooking the books? (laughs) That's right. Whoa. I mean, he's out here, like, literally killing people left and right. Yeah, like, he's uh, he's a professional hitman from what this all is saying. And because some shady corrupt officer fudged some details now he's he got out mm-hmm. now he's a free man damn that's all it takes sometimes that's all it takes 
well, cops shouldn't be shady and corrupt, and then these types of things wouldn't happen. Obviously, he wasn't the best hitman if he had got caught twice. <laughs> like he was gone, he was bound to make a mistake to get in jail. And then he tells the worst lies. He's like, "No, it was self defense. He had a gun on me first. He the gun jammed, so I killed him." It's like, dude, like, dude, lie better, please. I guess they didn't like those slow wheels of justice either. Mm-mm. Well, that was Evangelos Gusis. Man, he could still be in jail. Because that was like just seven years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Now, who knows how many people he's murdered? Yeah, he's he's just racking up that money, making those hits. It's crazy. That is to go from such potential to that. Yeah, yeah, because even though even though he didn't make the Olympics, he was the middleweight, a world kickboxing association champion. The world, crazy. The world. Yeah, I mean, he could have just kept his practice working you know bettering himself and he could have made the olympics in four more years mm-hmm. but instead he turned to a life of crime yeah those uh those those associates that he met either like you know bouncing and boxing and kickboxing they must have really like wooed him with the the lustrous dreams of fast money and high-paced lifestyles because like you know a lot of sports a lot of athletes um you know they love adrenaline so yeah if if he's going from like you know like i'm in the ring like you know risking my bones being broken why not be on the streets and risk my life being taken why not you know why not do some do some crazy stuff yeah i could see how you know being an assassin would be an adrenaline rush oh yeah i could see it I personally you, wouldn't do it. But 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 if you, but if you're an assassin though, you need you need good connects to get you out of places. I mean, yeah, he's out he's out of prison now, but he got caught multiple times and his trail was on everything to for them to get questioned at least. Right, and he didn't get out because he was innocent. He got out on a technicality. Yeah, right, right, right. So you know he, but he's not in jail now from what we know so maybe he became a better assassin maybe those few years in jail taught him something yeah he maybe burned his fingerprints off and balled his head different things so he doesn't leave any DNA behind wow so now that we've talked about some athletes that have fallen from grace how are we going to bring this back up do you you know the word on when sports will start back again for the United States? I do not. Sadly. Uh, I well, that didn't help. <laughs> um, however, Netflix has Hannibal all three seasons. Wonderful, wonderful show. Did you ever watch that when it was on TV? No, um, I I know I know of the actor though, um, Mans is that his name? Matt Mads Milliken. 
Mads. Yeah, um, he's a great actor. I have not seen the show, though. He is the best Hannibal Lecter ever. I'm surprised there's three, I'm surprised there's three seasons worth of content for that. I mean, they're our show, our episodes, right? Yeah. But it's like a very, very cerebral show. Like, you, you kind of have to pay attention to it. But, like, it's not really completely centered around him. It's more of, like, the FBI. But he's kind of, like, helping the FBI while also being who they're looking for, pretty much. Oh, wow. <laughs> like, it, it's a lot going on. But, like, one of the, the other people helping the FBI has, like, this... Like, he's pretty much also a psychopath, but he doesn't use it for bad. So when he goes into a crime scene, like, he, he like, recreates everything in his head to, like, figure out how it happened and stuff. And he, like, kind of puts himself in, in the place of the murderer. He just doesn't know exactly who the murderer is. It's... Wow. It's, like, crazy. Like, if you watch it, it's... It's crazy, but it's so good, and I wish that it had went more than than three seasons. But I've been binging that, like, you know, two, three episodes every night, pretty much. Well, actually, nice, no, nice. not not even that many, because I'm still in season one, so maybe, like, two episodes every night. That's good, taking that moderation. That's yeah. flying through it. Yeah, I'm like paying more attention on some parts because I remember being lost a lot when I watched it like on TV. But now that I can like see it back to back and not have to wait a week, I can be like, oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and streaming streaming shows is like the best thing, just because of that. Yeah, it really is. Now I'm like trying to wait until another show that I like to watch the new season finishes so I can stream it all and not have to wait. Right. For whenever season blank coming soon. Right. Cause we, we know that they're not filming anything now. So mm. any new season of anything probably isn't going to be until gonna like be, late be 2021, yeah. early 2022. So we have to savor what little bit of new shows we get. You know, it's so crazy to say we're living in the 20s now because, like, now, like, you have to say 1920s because we're in the 20s now. And then we'll be in the 30s and the 40s. I think that's pretty neat that we're going to go over it all over again and then have to refer to everything else as, like, 19XX. Yeah, that is weird. I mean, like, the roaring 20s was a thing, but now, like, the roaring 1920s, you know? <laughs> yeah, because, well, I think people will know that these 20s are not starting out with the roar, starting out <laughs> with tears. Screams. <laughs> yes. Anguish. Screams of anguish, exactly. Well, other than Hannibal, which I highly suggest, I. I noticed, like, I really only watch, like, pretty much true crime stuff. That and Bob's Burgers. <laughs> you gotta have balance there. You gotta have balance. Like, so, 
whenever you get a chance, watch Hannibal on Netflix. It is crazy. It's good. Mads Milliken, I think that's his real last name. I might just be making that up. He is a great Hannibal Lecter. He's been in so many things, too. And I think that's just, like, the perfect role. He's so cute and as Hannibal. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's cute. And he was also in, um, I think, Casino Royale, one of the 007 movies. He was... Yeah. He was a villain. Yeah, yeah, I remember him as a villain. Um, and he was also and um, he was also in Death Stranding, a video game. And of course, he looks like super real in it because they use like all that point model facing stuff, the dots and everything. And he and he even like had it on his Twitter for a couple times. Ooh, that's cool. I didn't know he was in video games too. Diversify. Mm-hmm. That's right. Get your money, sir. Get That's your money. Exactly. Exactly. Well, that has... This has been a very good episode to me. Yeah. I, I thoroughly enjoyed our sports figures falling from grace. Mm-hmm. Like, I really want to go watch some old figure skating now. Um, shoot, I, I want to watch it just, just to see just to see how good they are. Yeah, like now, but that I know, like, what a triple axle actually is, I am super impressed. Mm-hmm. Like, I can barely stand up on, on ice skates. Right. <laughs> much less do all that. Yeah, triple, double, quadruple. Right, like flips and all that stuff. I'm just impressed by the pure athleticism of athletes of that caliber. Yeah, they're definitely they're definitely freaks of nature, and and I can definitely see how how having so much pressure on you can lead you to you know doing drugs or just doing crimes because like you know people think you're perfect but you're not perfect. And no one understands you because they will always see you as, as like, you know, the money sign, like the dollar sign or your team colors. They'll always see you as that. They won't ever see you as a person. And so when you're dis- when you're disassociated like that, it um, kind of takes out, takes the human out of you, too. Wow. Have you been reading my FBI trainee notes? Maybe. Because that was quite insightful. <laughs> Maybe. It, are are we are are we going to be agents together, Agent Key and Agent V, on the case? I'm down with that. I are are we both going to be behavioral analysis agents? <laughs> sure thing. I'm down for that. All right. Well, I'll save you a seat in 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 Monday's class at Quantico. <laughs> All right. See you then. All right. Well, with that, I'm Key. And I'm V. And this has been We Shouldn't Talk About This. Thanks for listening. Bye.